hello then and uh, you are very welcome to passing the baton series 2 uh, 28th of February 2009 and it'll be around about number 22 I should think in the series this one's called what's a faith and it's subtitled disappointment with God before we start looking at what faith is I need to say that I'm on the same journey as you into the heart of God we know in part the Bible tells us and we prophesy in part in this case I know very much in part but I want to impart some truths I've discovered along the way on my own journey in the hope that they may in some manner help you I'm not suggesting that I know about this subject what follows is largely a description of my own personal journey along the way as illustrations I'll use the term bridges to try to convey what I mean I do trust you won't get confused I'll do my utmost to ensure clarity in trying to explain the inexplicable so thank you and once again welcome to what's a faith or the subtitle disappointment with God Graham Cook says this about prophecy prophecy is attacking stimulating and provoking it is designed to put a sharp edge on our relationship with God and how we live our lives and handle truth we can no longer afford to ignore things because they are dangerous so I would like to start with the prophecy the Lord gave me on the 28th of December last year 2008 which you can find on the website and it said this this is a new day there are two paths to be walked in this coming year the higher path is intimacy not service on the higher path you serve me out of your relationship with me on the lower path you love me with your understanding of who I am not who I really am on the higher path you know who I am you love who I am and your walk with me and service to me flows from this there is nothing wrong with the lower path but I share my secrets with my friends on the higher path you are my friends if you do those things which I command you this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you if you are to keep my commandment you must experience my love for you in order that I may love others through you that you may be blessed and be a blessing wherever you go because the I am is with you as I was preparing this message the Lord was speaking to me about knowing his ways knowing how he thinks without knowing how he thinks and how he likes to do things we'll end up not knowing him and not knowing the schemes of the devil either furthermore we may be disappointed with God he hasn't changed his original blueprint for mankind you can find that in Genesis 1 that we might be made in his image and his likeness he has an agenda for us 
How often we hear people falling away from the faith because they say God is a disappointment. They're usually angry and upset because what they hope for hasn't happened and they blame God and walk away from the only person who can help them. Sometimes they will stay in this state for years absolutely refusing to hear that it may have been their idea of who God is rather than God himself that is their problem. As a result they stay lonely, depressed, isolated, dissatisfied and unhappy, inhabiting neither the kingdom of light nor being able to rest in the kingdom of darkness from which they've been rescued. They are, as Paul would say, of all people most miserable. You do need a fireproof jacket if you get too close to them. They can be vitriolic in their denunciation of him. On one of his recent teachings, Graham Cook talks about how he learnt to love in the face of love not being reciprocated. And I thought then how he was in identification with our Lord who loves us all the time in the face of our ignorance, inability or unwillingness to love him in return. What a great God he is to absorb so totally all our failures in every area and every respect. Don't you love him? I want to start by asking you to define in your own words what you mean when you speak about having a faith, having faith for something specific or believing God for something. What exactly is your own personal definition of faith? It's not a trick question. This is to get you thinking about what you profess to believe. Please write down your answers and at the end of the day you can come back to it and see how it matches with what's been said and if you've changed your opinion in any way. Some of you may be familiar with a film or a book entitled The Perfect Storm. This is the true story of the loss of a fishing boat and crew in a so-called perfect storm some few years ago now off the coast of Nova Scotia. The helicopter attempts at rescue and the subsequent loss of lives. The reason it was termed the perfect storm was that the most unusual meteorological phenomena lined up together causing what they termed the perfect storm, creating absolutely the worst scenario that could ever be imagined as three storms merged from different directions causing freak waves a hundred foot high. A hurricane off Bermuda, a cold front and a storm over the Great Lakes were the ingredients for this perfect storm as they converged over the, the sea off Nova Scotia. There is currently a prophetic word in existence of the same title. This has been put out by John Paul Jackson of Streams Ministries. His is a voice you can trust. You can see the video if you go into his website where he talks of this coming perfect storm that is likely to hit America and the rest of the world in the very near future and the elements that it will contain. 
In this prophetic word he talks of the political, religious, economic and meteorological elements lining up again in perfect formation, maximizing the effect and the devastation. And he talks of wave upon wave of destruction coming upon the United States of America and elsewhere. John Paul largely attributes the coming storm to the fact that the church in America has failed its duty in its duty to bring salt, light, compassion, love and care into the country. And because of this, he sees the coming storm as being firstly discipline on the church, which he is anxious for us to understand is motivated by God's great love for us. In a way it is judgment, but in another way it is grace before the end time judgment which is coming, as well as judgment on an unbelieving, greedy and self-gratifying nation. Beloved, we are living in serious times. 2 Chronicles 7.14 says this, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. As the warning goes out to us and we see how we too as a church have so dismally failed it's not too late for us to make a U-turn and become that which the Father intended to this nation of ours. As we listen today, may the Holy Spirit move upon our hearts in a determination to do differently and live differently, that his kingdom may come in our lives and in our nation. May give us ears to hear and hearts to understand in this day. So everything we are experiencing could be training us to be ready for the perfect storm. Some of you may be experiencing a perfect storm round your own lives right now. It will probably look like chaos to you. It may feel as though God has left you. You may feel you are drowning. But I have to tell you that the fact is quite the opposite. In the storm he is showing you his ways are not your ways neither are your thoughts his thoughts and he is absolutely in control of everything that surrounds you. He will not let you go. You are his treasured, precious possession and there is no way that he is not with you in every single circumstance that is upon you right now. The perfect storm is being allowed for your growth in him. God brings order out of the chaos surrounding our lives so that he may establish something profound within us. As I sought the Lord and studied for this day I was impressed that things ain't what they used to be. Graham's prophecy, which we studied last time, has started a ball rolling that won't stop now until Jesus comes back for his church. Do you remember last month I quoted Jonathan Edwards who said this, 
The task of every generation is to discover in which direction the Sovereign Redeemer is moving and move in that direction. We are in a time of profound change. Everything that can be shaken in the church is being shaken. Our ideas of what church is all about and our theories and opinions are about to be blasted out of the water by truth. I suspect that what I'm going to be talking about today will have a mixed response. The truth when it first comes is almost always negative. By that I mean when we first hear inspirational truth we often say it's not God. We won't receive it because it doesn't fit our ideas of what we believe and what we think God is like. As Bob Mumford would say, we are about to be faced with a gang of ugly facts. So from illusion to disillusion, a spiritual journey. Our base text for today is Isaiah 55, 8-11. I've already made a couple of references to it. It goes like this, starting from verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. If we're to understand a life of faith, we have first to see God as he really, really is, not how we think he should be or how we would like him to be. He does allow in his wisdom what he could easily prevent by his power. And when we are thrust into circumstances beyond our control, which devastate our lives, we sometimes cannot understand why God would allow them if he loves us, loves us as he says he does, or as we understand love. The problem here lies in just that, our understanding of what God's love is like and who he really, really is. As a race, we want to avoid discomfort at all costs, and self-preservation is deeply ingrained in us. We will go to great lengths to protect ourselves, and sometimes the only way to break through our self-preservation is by God's allowance in our lives of circumstances that he could easily prevent by his power. We do not like this. God's reputation is the most maligned, even among those who profess to be his. Many people still see him as having a big stick, just waiting for us to step out of line so he can punish us. Many people see heartache and devastation in their lives as having been caused by God, not allowed by him. Beloved, we see through a glass very darkly. 
The bottom line is that we see through our fallen ideas of what love would or would not do or ask of us in any given situation. The mega shift that has begun in the church is twofold. Firstly, it's about understanding who God really, really is and his perfect love for us so that we come to the place of loving the God who loves us without reserve and secondly, when we know that, we're able to love others with the same love, the unconditional love of God. To enable the shift, some mindsets will have to be broken, which will be a painful process. Sacred cows of religious expectations, experience, behaviours and attitudes will have to go. They cannot cohabit with the reality of the kingdom and who God really, really is. Bob Mumford terms these realities which break in a gang of ugly facts and he describes his first encounter with them. He'd always wanted to be a doctor and in his early years was assisting a surgeon with an operation on a young mother of 32 years of age who had a tumour on her pancreas. He says he went into the operating room completely assured that this doctor could take care of her problem. But when the incision was made, the tumour was the size of a grapefruit. Bob asked the surgeon, what are you going to do? Only thing I can do, he replied, and sewed her up again. She has three months to live. What he experienced was what he terms a gang of ugly facts breaking in on him. He realised that the doctor was mortal, he was not a magician, and the situation was beyond his control. He wanted to see the woman healed, but the ugly fact was that she was going to die, and die very young. Your gang of ugly facts may not be as severe as that, they may be something more like this. Romans 8, 17-21 And if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Romans 8, 17-21 speaks of a certain kind of suffering. For example, the suffering that would result for you if God said, Christmas, I want you to stop celebrating Christmas. Stop what you do. I'd like that. The result for you would be some kind of suffering, persecution, loss of family, friends, isolation. But God asked it of you. Why? Because he wants to make a distinction between the things that are holy 
God made and the things that are man-made traditions. He also wants to test your obedience. Will you do this in the face of the persecution it will bring about? He wants to bring you from religion to relationship, from unreality to reality. This gang of ugly facts will brutally murder your theories about him and will ultimately bring you to a place of reality you didn't know existed and he does it out of love for you. Quoting again from Bob Mumford, you'll find yourself served in a way that you're not sure you even want to be served. Maybe it's time you stopped believing in Father Christmas anyway and grew up a little. The truth when it first appears is almost always negative. Just think for a moment what a real relief it would actually be not to have to get caught up in the Christmas stuff. Please hear me on this. I'm using this as an example of reality breaking in. I'm not laying down a dictum. But it is a very good example of what is about to come on the church. Reality breaking in. The kingdom of God is coming. This is the sort of painful shift you will experience to come into reality in God and live a life of faith and trust in who he is. It's the kingdom breaking in and we'll probably not like it at first and we must understand the process he uses to separate unreality from reality. When the kingdom actually came in the form of the Lord Jesus, the Pharisees didn't like it at all and totally rejected it because it cut right across their ideas and their established ways of doing things. They feared the loss of their position, their synagogues and their power over the people. The truth when it comes has a way of doing that. It blasts in on us in a way that we do not welcome at first and we rise up against it. Bob again describes it thus. A real dose of consummate reality is, to about, is about to break upon us. As the kingdom comes, it displaces how wonderful theories with absolute, unshakable kingdom reality. And that's a painful process. Many concepts about our children, church, finances, etc. are in unreality. When Christ comes and brings reality to these areas, we must not refuse what he's showing us. Our seemingly incurable tendency towards human illusion is about to be shattered. God's love for us will not and cannot leave us in unreality or frustration. He must take us on a journey into uncreated, eternal and unshakable truth and he does this through agape. Agape is inexorably to bring us, even kicking and screaming, out of darkness into that which is uncreated. You have been warned. <laughs> Time's up, church coming ready or not.
something called reformation is upon us. This beloved is the new thing that God is presently doing with, through and in his church, showing us a life and a love less ordinary. If you were with us last year, you'll remember a teaching on a different way of living, a different way of loving. That was the first shot over the bows, as it were. Whatever I may be teaching on this year, the baseline will always be the same. The reality of God's love for, his, for us, his desire for relationship with us, and through that relationship, his love worked into us and through us to a hurting and unbelieving world. We are here for a purpose, and it is not primarily to get our needs met. It's what he promised in Graham's prophecy. I will give you a new heart and a new mind, and you will think as I think. It's the divine acceleration in action. This is that which was spoken of. In order to frame what I need to say, I'll have to give you some background information which you may find dull. Please try to embrace it. For far too long we have been fed on pre-digested food. We don't think deeply about anything, including what we profess to believe. Times they are a-changing and things ain't what they used to be. I want to trigger you into thinking today. If you can worry, you can think. So if you've thrown your brains away when you became a Christian, it's time to reclaim them. Fasten your seatbelts. This is 2009 and Jesus is coming very, very soon. We need to be wise virgins, not foolish ones. This teaching links very closely to the January session when we listened to Graham Cook's divine acceleration prophecy as God offered us five years growth in 12 months if we wanted it, provided we would learn to run. We're interested in the growth all right, God's interested in us understanding what he just said. This prophecy is what theologians would call a propositional truth. God is making us a proposition. If you do this, i.e. learn to run, I will do that and give you this. It's a proposition. Propositional truth, or in this case, propositional prophecy. Another way of looking at it is, if you give me £10, I'll give you whatever we've decided I'll give you. I'm making you a proposition. Another word for it is a conditional promise. God was saying, I promise to give you all these things on condition you agree to say yes and stick with the process. There are very few unconditional promises in the Bible. God's promise not to flood the earth and his covenant rainbow is an example of an unconditional covenant or promise. Almost all the others are conditional on human response. These lovely things come to us conditional on our response they are not automatic. This is where I firmly believe so many Christians founder. 
They take a conditional promise from the Word of God and they do not fulfill the conditions. So they do not receive the promise. Result, disappointment and disillusion. God, they say, doesn't keep his promises. We always have to reconcile two things in our thinking and they seem to be opposites. The first one is that God wants to give us good things which we can't earn and don't deserve. The second one is you can't have his provision unless you do certain things. God gave Jesus as a free gift but if you don't accept him you die. If you do accept him you no longer pay the death penalty for sin. In a sense that's always a dilemma. It's the most debated aspect of Christianity, legalism versus grace. Legalism in the church, legalism that says you have to keep certain rules and regulations and the tension of everything is by grace. Everything is free. We are always living in the tension of that somehow, some way. Legalism versus grace. Legalism overemphasizes that we must observe certain rules and regulations in order to be in right standing with God. So the whole accent is on your performance as a Christian. Grace says that under the new covenant we cannot earn God's gift by keeping rules and regulations because everything is free in Christ. They are both extreme positions. Both of them have taken some aspect of the truth too far. God doesn't want legalism, but neither does he want disobedience. So we can't earn anything by our own goodness or our own efforts. However, God's gifts can only be received under certain conditions. Let's just examine a promise from the New Testament. John 15 verse 7 If you remain in me and my words remain in you ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. If you obey my commands you can ask anything you like and it will be granted. But it's a conditional promise. You keep this part and you can have this. You do what I want, I'll do what you want. A lot of us here, you may ask what you wish. Wow! And we dash off with that, ignoring completely the condition attached to it. If you obey my commands, if you abide in me. It's a remarkable promise, but it's wrapped around this if clause. If you stay in me and obey my commands, you can ask anything you like and it will be granted. Every promise is conditional, even salvation. Look at John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
Some people do perish because they don't fulfil the condition of choosing to believe. The interesting thing is that the condition always describes how the promise is to be fulfilled and only under the prescribed conditions can a promise become reality. John 15.5 I'm the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We shall produce a large crop of fruit provided we live in him and allow him to live in us. What we usually concentrate on is the fruit. If we would concentrate on the abiding, fruits guaranteed. So what's God saying in this? What's he getting at here? He's saying, listen, I want you to concentrate on your relationship with me. You concentrate on unbroken fellowship with me and you'll produce the fruit automatically because the fruit comes with the life. But what are we doing? We are always concentrating on the end result, not the process by which that result is achieved. God's always focusing on the process, not on the end result. It's a classic example of your ways and not my ways. My way is, he says, you must concentrate on process. If you do, fruit is guaranteed. Take your eyes off the fruit. Take your eyes off the end result. Put your eyes on the process, abiding, relationship, and you'll automatically fulfill the end result. You'll achieve that and you'll realize that and receive it if you commit yourself to the process I'm trying to birth in you. Having laid that base, I can now go on to introduce another thought to you. A lot of what happens in the church has caused us to be disillusioned. Graham Cook would say, if you are disillusioned, you had an illusion in the first place. Point taken. Therefore, we have to be healthily disillusioned in order that we can come into reality or our disillusion will become disappointment and we will fall away. Let's just look at this for a moment. Disillusion and offence. Before we can be disillusioned we must first have certain illusions. These may include an unrealistic image or idea about who God is and what we should expect of him, or perhaps an unrealistic opinion of what other Christians should be and do. Once we're walking in this kind of false understanding, we are set up for disillusionment. This is not new. The early followers of Jesus were charmed, enthralled and delighted by his words, his miracles and his love. 
The longer they followed him, however, the more they found the things he said and did less enchanting than they first thought. Nothing about the gospel message is convenient. Nothing is comfortable about bearing a cross and dying daily on it. For this reason, many believers are offended today when men of God declare the demands of the law, the obedience and sacrifice required by the gospel. We would much rather hear about God's love, blessing, prosperity and healing. These concerns for our personal comfort, security and convenience are rooted in our fallen nature. Many Christians no longer attend church because they are disillusioned, offended, hurt and unfulfilled. Many of us say we would like to belong to a New Testament church. But look what happened to a lot of New Testament believers. They were crucified, thrown to the lions, used as human torches, ostracised, persecuted and hounded. Is that really what you want? I believe what we mean when we say we want a New Testament church is that we want the freedom to exercise our gifts and enjoy church life. But it doesn't go much further than that. We've not thought through what we're talking about. Jesus himself told us we would suffer. Your parents will turn against you. You'll be in trouble with the authorities. People will turn against you because you bear my name. He spoke in this way in order that we didn't become romantic Hollywood believers and set ourselves up to be offended at him. He himself said, many of you will be offended at me. Go to Matthew 11 verse 6 and if you have it in the Amplified Bible, follow me. And blessed, happy, fortunate and to be envied is he who takes no offence at me and finds no cause for stumbling in or through me and is not hindered from seeing the truth. The word he uses here is very interesting, offence. In the Greek it's the word scandalizo, from which we get our word scandal. The root of this word is a term used to describe the bait in a trap which was used to snare animals. An offence or a scandal is a situation that causes us to be trapped or ensnared and therefore hampered, hindered or even stopped in our walk with the Lord. We are offended by him or his representatives and stumble and fall away, sometimes permanently. The process of being offended in a church or any other situation really starts with an unrealistic expectation of what the Lord or somebody else should do. We can see a clear example of this in the Old Testament with Naaman, the captain of the army of Syria, when he came to Elisha seeking healing of his leprosy. That man was offended at Elisha's non-reception of him. You can read the story for yourself in 2 Kings 5. He thought he was going to get the treatment from Elisha, and he didn't. He says something like this. I thought he would come out, 
stand and call upon the name of his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me. None of the things that Naaman expected happened and as a result he was sorely upset. To crown it all he was told to go and dip himself in that dirty river, the Jordan. <sighs> Another in the New Testament who was potentially offended by Jesus was John the Baptist. He'd seen Jesus as coming with fire and judgment. The axe, he said, is laid at the root of the unfruitful tree. Israel, he said, you have got it coming to you. But Jesus didn't fulfill his expectations. Instead of thundering forth judgment, he was speaking of love and the fatherhood of God. This was not what John had in mind, so he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the coming one or shall we look for somebody else? Get with the program, Jesus. Jesus had to adjust John's expectations of the nature of the coming kingdom because John's difficulty was not based on what Jesus did but what John expected him to do. So Jesus has to send John a message. Matthew 11 verse 6 Tell John, he says, and he tells him all the things that are happening and ends by saying, and blessed is he who doesn't take offence at me. As a forerunner of Jesus, John proclaimed the coming of the Messiah and the Kingdom of God. But his prophetic insight looked beyond the first coming to the second. So John's problem in essence was that he had wrong expectations about what Jesus was going to do when he came to set up his kingdom. So he sent some of his disciples to find out what was going on. Read the whole passage and you'll see what's happening. Offence followed by disillusionment comes when our perception, vision, opinion or convenience is being confronted by reality. When the Lord doesn't cooperate with the fulfilling of our expectations, we find ourselves offended and doubting his character. There are numerous occasions for offence and stumbling which lie in our path. One primary area of offence is promised or claimed healings which never manifest. In the issue of healing the problem of personal convenience and advantage surface. How much more fitting it would be to have God heal us or our loved ones. What a testimony we would have than to have to see them go through days and weeks of pain and maybe even lose them at the end of it. Understand me here, it's not God's desire to see his children suffer. But we need to discern the difference between a restful confidence of what, what God wants to do in any given situation based on what he's told us in prayer and the extraction of a promise that is claimed from the scripture and goes beyond his will for any given situation which eventually gives rise to disappointment and disillusionment. Many people who backslide, lovely phrase, 
begin their downward journey because a stumbling block of offence is put in their way. If they are unable to deal with the offence, they begin to separate themselves from God, his people or both. Many backsliders start their downward journey simply because a Christian or group of Christians didn't measure up to the standard they themselves had set and they distanced themselves from all of God's people as a result. Such isolation results in a departure from active fellowship with others and ultimately with the Lord himself. Finally, doctrines taken out of their proper context or overemphasized become the source of stumbling to us and others because they do not produce what was promised. Keys, formulas, impartations, all designed to get our needs met or receive the blessing of the Lord, healings and all sorts can become the source of our own personal stumbling. If we look to these teachings or doctrines as the source of personal fulfilment and a quick and easy answer to all our problems. The missing ingredient in all of these things, keys, formulas, impartations, is relationship. If you are claiming a scripture or using a formula or key, you are not in a right relationship with the Lord because you are telling him what he needs to do in any given situation. You are not inquiring of him or waiting on him as is proper and right. Part of our acceleration will of necessity be an unlearning process. That's not negative. If we unlearn properly we can gain an awful lot of understanding. We must expand our thinking and explore what we believe or profess to believe more deeply or it will not stand the test and will end up in disappointment. If anyone right now recognises that they have been offended by God or anyone else, just take the time to do business with him. Stop your CD right now and put right anything that you need to put right for your own sake. Now I want to address something which I've titled Seeing Inside the System. For the last 500 years since Martin Luther shook things up in 1517, the modern or contemporary church is all we've known. But modern or present day concepts of the church, how it functions and the way it functions, are beginning to die. When God moves into a different time frame, the result is felt on earth. There is currently a marked move away from what we've known towards something we do not know. For instance, there's a Methodist chapel near us that has been turned into three little houses. There are church buildings that have become shopping malls. That which those who built them thought would last until Jesus came have passed with time into relics and mausoleums no longer places of worship, but places of industry, commerce and housing. They served their time, but their time has passed. 
as I was meditating all this and on all this and, and praying the Lord showed me a picture of a beautiful golden cube balancing seemingly on one corner and suspended in the blackest space I thought that what he was showing me was the earth and I was puzzled as I looked at this cube suspended as it seemed on one corner and then I saw out of the corner of my right eye a globe which was only just in view. I continued to look at this picture and this is what I believe he said. The ancients thought that the world was flat and they would have argued this. Then they discovered it was round and they would have argued this. The globe you see represents what you know which is disappearing from your view and you would have argued this. But what you know is about to be superseded by something else that as yet you do not know. That is the golden cube which is in your vision but as yet you do not know. Old things are passing away in the church and in the world. We are entering or have entered a new era. For us as the body of Christ there is a transition which is akin to that from puberty to adulthood. It's a stage we all have to go through and would rather not as we grow into adults. As a body the church is in transition between one era and another. God is revealing more of himself and where he's going and we sense the change but we're off our map and we don't yet understand or recognize the terrain. Nothing is familiar. We as the church are going to be subjected to a gang of ugly facts as we're brought face to face with and discover things about what we believe and who we are and how we're intended to function that we probably rather not recognize. We're going to be served as Bob Mumford would say in a way that we would rather not have been served. We'll need to do a rethink on such issues as our religious, philosophical and mythical ideas of what life and walking with Jesus Christ was going to be like. They're all suddenly under attack. It will bring us from one place to another, but the journey could mess with our comfort zones a little as we go along the way. Most of us are, are probably quite religious inverted commas. By that I mean we do the same thing every Sunday of the year and have done undisturbed for years. My first pastor was in the habit of saying religion is supporting my football team. I religiously, dutifully attend whether they win, lose or draw. My Christian walk on the other hand is relational. Much of what we know as the contemporary or modern church is fast coming to an end. In ten years we will not recognize ourselves. We're rapidly moving as a body into kingdom emphasis because the king is coming. Jesus taught his disciples to pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Before he comes that will be a reality. As the kingdom comes it will replace theories with absolutes and that is a painful process. We have an incurable tendency as human beings towards illusion, fantasy and daydreams. We make things the way we want them to be, pretty them up rather than see them the way they are 
in order to make them more acceptable to ourselves and others. This is why the doctrine of hell and eternal punishment is not a popular one. Why we soft-pedal on sin of any kind, because we cannot face the truth. Many Christians get offended that God may support capital punishment. Murder is still an abomination to him. Abortion is murder. Lines are being blurred all the time. We daydream a little. In our postmodern culture, we're increasingly indoctrinated with the belief that there are no absolute truths. Beloved, as believers, truth is our baseline. Absolute truth. We cannot allow ourselves to be sucked into this culture. It's imperative that we know what we know, believe what we believe, and live in the good of it. God is shaking the church to her foundation, Jesus Christ. On no other foundation can any man lay. No other foundation can you build. However we came by our theories about what God really is really, really like, whether they were taught us or handed down from previous generations, God is about to shake them. God will take us out of unreality so that he can take us into absolute reality, truth and freedom. God's going to bring us, perhaps kicking and screaming, out of our present darkness into the light of his glorious kingdom, where we truly know him as he is and love him for who he is, not for who we think or want him to be. I suspect that what I've already said may be making some of you feel distinctly uncomfortable. But I'm more interested, like a sergeant major, in your being able to handle your weaponry and come out alive than I am in your comfort. If I really manage to teach you how to survive in what is coming, you may not be happy right now, but once you get into battle, these things may not only change your life, they could possibly save it, and maybe the lives of those around you. Out of his great love for us, God's about to separate reality from unreality for us. The only thing that will prevent us from moving on is denial. If we deny what he wants to do, we'll end up like the Amish, isolated, religious, fearful, not living in this century, but retaining values that are way out of date because their response to change has been denial. They quite probably love Jesus with all of their hearts, but they're in total denial that there is any other way of interpreting and living the scriptures than the way that they do. This is a description of the Amish taken from Wikipedia. The Amish are members of an Anabaptist Christian denomination best known for simple living, plain dress and resisting modern conveniences. The word Amish is a term used by non-Amish. The Amish would refer to themselves as the plain folk. The roots of the Amish began in Switzerland among Swiss brethren in 1693 under the leadership of Jacob Arman. Then, in the early 18th century, they began immigrating to Pennsylvania because of intense persecution. 
Today they continue to speak the Pennsylvanian German or Alemic German of their former homeland. Over the years there have been several divisions among the Amish. The Old Order Amish are those that have been the most successful at resisting change and in retaining their traditional way of life. Amish church membership begins with baptism, usually between the ages of 18 and 21. It is a requirement for marriage and once a person has joined church they must marry within the faith. Church districts average between 20 to 40 families and worship services are held every other Sunday in a member's home. The district is led by a bishop and several ministers and deacons. The rules of the church must be observed by every member. These rules cover most aspects of day-to-day -day living. Not using power line electricity, limiting the use of telephones, prohibiting ownership and operation of an automobile and specifying the style of dress. Amish do not buy insurance nor accept government assistance such as social security. As Anabaptists, Amish practice non-resistance and will not perform any type of military service. Members who do not conform to these expectations and who cannot be convinced to repent are excommunicated. In addition to excommunication, members may be shunned, a practice that limits social contacts, contacts in order to shame the wayward member into returning to the church. During adolescence, called rumspringer or running around in some communities, non-conforming behaviour that would result in the shunning of an adult who'd made the permanent commitment of baptism may meet with a certain degree of forbearance. The Amish seek to limit contact with the outside world. Instead, they emphasise church and family relationships. They typically operate in their own one-room schools and stop their education at grade 8. They value a rural life where a large family provides an abundance of manual labour. Because of intermarriage among this relatively small population, higher incidences of certain inheritable diseases occur. Their traditional way of living also makes them an object of tourism and this has caused many clashes with the modern world. Someone said that if you don't make the transition that the church is in right now you'll end up like the Amish and there'll be buses coming to visit you to see how quaint you are. It's a possibility, believe me. That, beloved, is what happens when you resist what God wants to do and go into denial. Scary. What are the ramifications then of seeing reality on the inside of your own life, your own spirituality and beliefs, or your own financial condition, your own church? As kingdom people, we must keep ourselves in reality about ourselves and the things around us. It's critical that we learn to see through rather than just look at something because very seldom does reality appear on the surface of a situation. It's almost always hidden underneath what we perceive with the natural eye. 
1 Samuel 16 verse 7 in the New International Version says this But the Lord said to Samuel Do not consider his appearance or his height for I have rejected him The Lord does not look at the things man looks at Man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart I'm not suggesting that you operate in the gift of suspicion towards others. I'm attempting to help you see beyond, to see through, rather than to look at the outside appearance, because beneath the outward appearance there is a reality. Again, Bob Mumford says this in his Plumline booklet entitled A Gang of Ugly Facts. Have you ever been faced with a gang of ugly facts that lurk in the dark, hidden inner workings of your church? Have you ever been an elder and seen the inner workings of how the organisation functions? I've been involved in church leadership for over 50 years and the superficial part is what everyone sees. When you go down into the basement and see the plumbing and electrical wiring underneath, you wonder how it ever functions. He was talking in the context of the death of your illusions in relation to your local church. He goes on to ask such questions as, what is the reality like? Is it kingdom? Does it represent kingdom? And other uncomfortable questions. It's time for us to challenge the status quo in our own lives. It's time to take a good long look at where we're going and what we're doing and examine it in the light of kingdom values. Only the kingdom will stand, nothing else. In the coming perfect storm, everything else will be swept away. In his great goodness and kindness, God is shaking us out of our apathy and contentment compromise and denial and bringing us into the reality of the king and his kingdom. When I speak of the kingdom I mean that which is eternal, uncreated, where Jesus reigns supreme. If we continue to live by appearance and believe the propaganda we ourselves generate, we set ourselves up for disillusionment and disappointment as we find that the man that we held in such high esteem is an ordinary family man who, as again Bob Mumford would say, puts his pants on one leg at a time, just like any other man. He has family problems, children who don't obey him, and situations he can't change. If we live in reality, we can embrace that and continue to love him when he gets it wrong because we can see beyond the situations which would otherwise offend us or cause us to stumble. However, if we insist on living by appearance and outward show, the Father will be obliged to show us the reality of the man, the church or the organisation and ourselves. Those who live by what appears to be good will fear the loss, the injury or the uncovering of that which appears to be real, but is not, and they will desire to keep up appearances at all costs. 
The more we are concerned for appearance, the outward, the less reality is actually present. Just like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, concerned with outward show and the letter of the law rather than re the reality of the king with them. He came into their midst manifesting all the qualities and the qualifications of the expected Messiah and they denied him. A kingdom church will be one where Jesus is manifestly Lord and King in the life of every believer and the agape of God is being replicated in real and tangible ways within the body of Christ. The reformation that is coming to the church will enable us to see each other in the reality of who we are and continue to live, love and accept each other without being critical or judgmental. Wouldn't you love that? Last month I said there was something outrageous coming out of heaven that was going to capture the church and that we had to unlearn church and learn about kingdom. This is that. God wants to teach us a new language. This new language is a language of love, the agape love of God. In order to learn this language, we have to unlearn the one we currently use. The transition is not going to be easy, nor at times will it be pleasant. The challenges will be allowed, will, will be allowing God to baptize us again in his love for us, our love for him, for people, and for the scriptures, so that we're pressing into what is real rather than depending on appearances and at the same time we're learning that new language, the language of heaven, agapeo. Life is real, life is earnest, so said Longfellow. When we come to look deeply at such, at such things as believing, faith, trust and hope we have to be earthed in reality, not wishful thinking, or we will be disappointed. We have to be aware of God's plan for us as a people, not continue to follow our plan for ourselves. We were created in His image to bear His likeness and to show forth His glory to an unbelieving and dying world. We didn't know the Christian walk was going to be like this. We didn't know the complications of what it meant to seek first and only the kingdom of God. We didn't know what belonging to a group of believers called the church would mean and we certainly didn't expect to meet hypocrites and liars there. To see the church for what it really is and love what we see is the mature response. So as we move into this time of God shaking all that can be shaken we need to make it our goal to love and support each other when all that is humanly created, all that is man-made and shakeable, is being shaken by God himself. In looking at our subject today, we've squarely to address the issues of pain and unanswered prayer. Unbelievers want answers to these things. We're not going to look at seven steps to get your prayers answered every time. 
but we are going to take a good look at what we mean when we talk about faith, trust, believing and knowledge. So I want us to start by looking at these and the difference between them. That is the difference between faith, trust, believing and knowledge. Matthew 24, 3-12 says this, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time many will turn away from the faith, and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. His disciples have asked the question, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? I don't want to go into end time teaching here, but to pull out what the signs of the end of the age or an age will be. We've heard prophecies in the last two years telling us that we're in a new era in God. By definition, that means the end of one thing and the beginning of another. So what does Jesus himself tell us to look for when this transition takes place. First thing, watch out that no one deceives you. Historically, whenever a nation, society or civilization comes to the end of something, it's marked by certain things, certain pressures, which need to be understood if we're to learn from history. Multitudes of different voices saying different things people turning away from the things of God, betrayal, hatred, false prophets and deceivers, the whole bunch. Let's take a look at how Paul put it in 2 Timothy 3, 1-5. I'm reading now from the message, which is headed up, Difficult Times Ahead. Don't be naive. There are difficult times ahead. As the end approaches, people are going to be self-absorbed, money-hungry, self-promoting, stuck-up, profane, contemptuous of parents, crude, coarse, dog-eat-dog, unbending, slanderous, impulsively wild, savage, cynical, treacherous, ruthless, bloated windbags, addicted to lust and allergic to God. They'll make a show of religion, but behind the scenes they're animals. Stay clear of these people. Here we see another description of end things, very similar to that of Jesus in Matthew 24, but Paul goes into even more detail. These times will be marked by relational difficulties, and the Amplified Bible says it like this. But understand this, that in the last days will come, set in, perilous times of great stress and trouble, 
hard to deal with and hard to bear, for people will be lovers of self and utterly self-centred, lovers of money and aroused by an inordinate greedy desire for wealth, proud and arrogant, contemptuous boasters. They will be abusive, blasphemous, scoffing, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy and profane. They will be without natural human affection, callous and inhuman, relentless, admitting of no truce or appeasement. They will be slanderers, false accusers, troublemakers, intemperate and loose in morals and conduct, uncontrolled and fierce, haters of good. They will be treacherous, betrayers, rash and inflated with self-conceit. They will be lovers of sensual pleasure and vain amusements more than and rather than lovers of God. For although they hold a form of piety, true religion, they deny and reject and are strangers to the power of it. Their conduct belies the genuineness of their profession. Avoid all such people, turn away from them. Holding a form of godliness, it says in some versions, these are not unbelievers, these are believers and what will mark them in the end time. Just keep your, these scriptures in your mind as we explore now the difference between faith and trust. And remember I spoke earlier on about bridges. Well, the bridges of faith, trust and believing. Trust you'll find is different from faith or believing. And trust is almost an endangered species in our world right now. Jesus is saying, as you come to the end of the age, the pressures of that age will make us look like this, even in the church. He's not addressing unbelievers and neither is Paul. This is a description of the church at the end of an era or the end of an age. Look around at the church. Are people steadfast, marked by integrity? Do they pay their dues? Can you trust them to do what they say? Are they open? Are they honest? Or are they so pressured by circumstances, by what's going on around them, that they cannot be relied upon and their word is no longer their bond? In my own experience, Christians can be the worst timekeepers, produce the shoddiest professional jobs, they cannot be relied on to do what they say they will, and they have the most unruly children. What does that say? That's not a criticism. We have to see the reality of where we are right now. Jesus and Paul are saying these are the signs to look for and we are in that time. Bridges of trust and belief. If you think about it, you'll find you hardly trust anyone. Politicians, their promises are a national joke. Oh yeah, when they say trust me. Jesus is saying the thing that will mark the end of the age is not so much lack of faith but lack of trust in anyone. Trust is becoming extinct, an endangered species. We are strangers and aliens in this world just passing through, sojourners, the King James says. We're subjected like everyone else to humanistic beliefs, occult pressure and all of that. But the real pressure on us comes within the body of Christ when trust there begins to break down. It is then you find yourself full of unbelief and suspicion even when you don't want to be. 
Experience has shown you people cannot be trusted in the church or out of it. So you become sceptical and unbelieving and the next step is you withdraw altogether, disillusioned and disappointed and quite often blaming God because of what you see in people. In order for anything to be trusted, it has to be trustworthy. Hebrews 2.13, New King James Version says it like this. I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am and the children whom God has given me. This is a quote from Isaiah 8.11-17, to where God is saying to the prophet, don't walk the way these people do and do not put your trust in the things they put their trust in. Put your trust in me. I am the one you are to revere, honour and respect. So Isaiah 8.11-17, reading now from the NIV, says this, and it's headed up, Fear God. The Lord spoke to me, verse 11 now with his strong hand upon me warning me not to follow the way of this people he said do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy do not fear what they fear and do not dread it the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy he is the one you are to fear he is the one you are to dread and he will be a sanctuary but for both houses of Israel he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem he will be a snare and a, tra a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble, they will fall and be broken, they will be snared and captured. Bind up the testimony, seal up the law among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. God is urging his people here not to fear what the people fear, to put their fear in the right place, to fear God and they won't fear anything else. He is promising that if they get their fear and dread in the right place, he will be a sanctuary for them in the time of trouble. In our day, in this time of shaking economically, politically, religiously and earthly, our fear must be in the right place. The fear of the Lord, it says in Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom. Right now, if you know that you do not have a healthy fear of the Lord, and by that I mean a reverent awe and respect of him, ask the Holy Spirit to work that in you, because without it you have no wisdom, no skill to live. Wisdom is the skill of knowing how God thinks and how he likes to work with us. And the fear of the Lord is not an emotion. It is an attitude of heart. One of the things we must come back to is the fear of the Lord and recognition of his majesty. A.W. Tozer said this in his introduction to his book called The Knowledge of the Holy. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low so ignoble as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshipping men. This she has done not deliberately but little by little and without her knowledge and her very unawareness 
only makes her situation all the more tragic. We've lost our once lofty ideas of God and replaced them with something so low as to be unworthy of thinking, worshipping men.